Are you wondering how you can learn more about food? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Chakula Podcast, brought to you by the Root to Food Initiative, a show that celebrates authentic Kenyan dishes and serves you hot conversations about food in Kenya from an economic, social, and political lens. Semanasi kwenye social media, at Root to Food on Instagram, at Root to Food on Twitter, and Root to Food on Facebook. And now, here's your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Chakula podcast. I'm your host, Felistas Mwalia. Karibuni sana. Thank you for tuning in, subscribing, and sharing it out. Today, we are having yet another interesting conversation, still around the food you eat. We are joined by Uyunga Pala, who is the curator-in-chief of The Elephant. Karibu sana, Uyunga. Thank you so much, Feli. How are you coping with COVID? How are things in Amsterdam? COVID has been kind. Fortunately, there's nobody around my immediate family who has been who has been affected. Ah. Um, I've, had, I've had a lot of other people who have suffered quite serious tragedies. Uh, it's, it's kept us all locked in. Uh, but, but we are grateful. There's been no drama. Amsterdam is good. It's just we're just we're just going into autumn. So it's Dutch wind and rain, which is terrible weather. I tell you, terrible. Yeah. It's actually quite similar here. It's too cold. Yeah, but you guys know, in, in one week it will be over. Us, we are stuck like this for the next three months. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Thanks for making time for this interesting discussion. You are one person who is passionate about indigenous food and traditional farming methods. And I think yeah. majority of Kenyans out here are starting to ask themselves about the disappearance of managu, how managu is really expensive nowadays. But for you, Yunga, tell us how it all began. Well, I, I grew up in Nairobi, mm-hmm. um, but my parents had, I used to say, like one foot family planted in, in, in the village and where they came from, the ancestral home. Yeah. Uh, this is out in Sarah County, a place called Game. So my grandmother was, was an active farmer. Mm-hmm. So throughout my life, we had a tradition of, at least through my schooling years, would go back every school holidays. Mm-hmm. And it sort of always coincided with some farming activity. As I grew up, I learned to be sort of, you know, you start off as being part of the labor. Yeah. Some who's just helping around then after a while you know you you learn the processes mm-hmm. and it's much later in life when i start to encounter other modern systems yeah. um, that i start to realize the value of what my grandmother was doing how smart a farming was so that's sort of what became the genesis of this sort of going back to to, to the core to going back to what i used to see my grandmother do because I started encountering these principles in all this sort of new, new sort of conscious movements around agriculture. Yeah. And that's when I realized, why does this sound so familiar? And when I sort of started to interrogate and go back and investigate, I said, this is exactly what we call a dana. This is exactly what dana used to do. Ah. Yeah. You mentioned how closely your family was connected to the rural lands and how that shaped social and food relations. What was that like? What, what was it like to be to be connected? Yeah, yeah. I think it's just that you know. I mean, I think I think as as, as Africans, um, this most of us, you, you have what we call the ancestral land, which of course um, could be a disputed term because at some point it does get acquired, depending yeah. on what your the movements of your people are. But it's it's where you it's sort of like it's 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 a piece of land that has been there since my great grandfather, right? So it's been in the family for over hundred years, huh? Yeah. Um, and when you think about it, of course, it's gotten subdi- subdivided. Um, 
but it becomes something that that we're very rooted in because it's it's our graves are there you know it's it's a piece of land that has brought up an entire just brought up generations huh? yeah so there's a very close connection and, and partly why it becomes really important there's two things one is that the land in itself was just habitation mm-hmm. but then also the land that feeds us it's a production unit so over the years we've just learned to exploit it really well yeah. but as the years as, as, as we're coming into sort of this, this era of modernity as the land starts to get smaller there's more pressure housing is taking more land suddenly realizing agriculture is not efficient and if we continue in this way this mod- model that we're doing yeah. those who come after us will really have no soils they they will they literally have dead dead land you know you you have a piece of land but it's it's not productive at all so then this is what has forced us to really really examine because now we come we are the custodians of this generation passing on to the next so whatever it is that we do now mm-hmm. will determine what our children inherit So this is then what forces us to say hey let's revisit our connections to this piece of land and say what are we doing as its custodians yeah well, thank you so much Uyunga uh, maybe mm. i can ask another question yes. not necessarily linking it to your family how your family was connected to the rural lands but mm. at what point do we begin to see the influence of capital in what we choose to farm and eat and what we plant in our urban gardens I think for us you know, it really goes back right to the encounter at least for my family specifically if I'd be very specific mm-hmm. it goes back to the encounter with colonization yeah mm-hmm. so I and I in the story I make the I make the distinction between how my grandfather was farming and how my grandmother was farming there's a clear distinction so my my grandfather then acquires the big portions of land you know it's not too much not very big a piece about just three to four acres and they're scattered just not all in one spot mm-hmm. So then my grandfather gets into two cash crops of the time. One becomes coffee mm-hmm. uh, because there was coffee in Nyanza in the in the 50s, 50s and 60s and then he gets into white maize. So white maize then becomes this the maize that we now eat here that's become sort of that the the norm. Yeah. yeah. Back then we had millet millet and sorghum. Those were our grains, our cereals. Mm-hmm. So white maize became a commercial product and it was commercial also because of the way it was grown. It was monocropped. Oh, yeah. You know, so you grow it and you grow it in you grow it in straight lines and you had to bring out a rope so that they all appeared in lines. So everybody was trying to mimic what then were the European farms, right? Yeah. And so that becomes our first encounter. And so what the separation is that my my grandfather is planting His, his his white maize and his coffee and his coffee bushes he's got a couple of coffee bushes and that industry dies because the processing is taken to the other side of the country and there's no support in at least in Nyanza but the maize the maize continues and but my grandmother has her little sort of what you'd call a, a back garden huh? behind a kitchen like a kitchen garden mm-hmm. and in it because he spent time there all the time as children every, practically every evening before dinner as you're helping around the kitchen and he always been sent to the garden And that's when you realize now in hindsight the garden had everything you know it had fruits it had cereals it had grains you know it had tubers you know it, it you know it had herbs and spices it had literally everything and it almost looked unruly mm-hmm. it wasn't kempt yeah yeah but now now that i i know better it's a very sophisticated permaculture system yet on my grandfather's fields where he was growing the the maize he was forced then later to when they started doing intercropping so they would introduce for example um they would introduce Uyunga, beans maybe I can yes? interject and take you back talking about permaculture yeah. is it similar to organic farming does it mean your grandma didn't use any pesticides basically for I a mean, normal could... person who has never interacted who has never heard of the term before 
what will you say yeah. about my culture I mean, involves? I mean, I wouldn't call it organic because I mean, organic just means sometimes I find the term a bit problematic, huh? Yeah. But permaculture basically is a short for permanent agriculture, mm-hmm. right? Which means you're farming on a piece of land um, continuously. But you're doing it in a way that's actually harmonious, right? So it's very minimal, very minimal cultivation. The plants are sort of like interdependent, right? Yeah. And um, so permaculture operates as almost as a system. So everything has to have a system. You know, the same plants that sort of wilt from there become manure for the others. So everything is inter integrated and it's never monocropped. It's full of diversity, right? Yeah. So 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 that's that's what I'm seeing my grandmother doing. She's doing it at a smaller scale, but her garden literally is productive throughout the year. So then that that creates a distinction. I mean, for the longest time, of course, we stick with the monocropping, which yeah. becomes sort of the, the ideal of agriculture, until through our own experiences, we start to see its limitations. Yeah. Okay. So from the previous questions, you've, you've talked about your grandmother and how every plant in your grandmother's garden had a function. Was it for utility value, a safeguard against inefficiency, or was it just prudent survival mechanism at a point where they didn't have the luxury to experiment with planting everything? I think you could say it's a combination of, of all of what you just said. Yeah. Uh, I, say, I would say all of the above. Yeah. Um, one is, I'm, and, and, and I think there's a core of it, the, the, which then becomes, I think, the genius of what they're doing. One is just they're dealing with the, with, with, with the realities of the environment, right? So if for, for a simple thing, like, for example, my grandmother always had cassava, right? Oh, yeah. And cassava was always a, was always a backup food in times of drought mm-hmm. because cassava would, would would survive any sort of extreme weather situation. And that means we had an alternative starch all the time, right? So mm-hmm. things like cassava. My grandmother, for example, had fruit. For example, she'd have a popo, yeah. but a self-perpetuating popo tree that always seemed to be fruiting. So there's the food security element of it, right? There was certain vegetables and certain herbs help sort of nitrogen fix the soil. Huh? So all of the greens she used to use huh? yeah, yeah. Would, would be very, would very useful. For example, she'd use, she'd have a lot of pumpkin leaves. Huh? Mm-hmm. Pumpkin. And the leaves would be perfect sort of fertilizers for other plants. Huh? Then she had like peppers, certain pilipilis, yeah. mm-hmm. which were perfect sort of insect deter- like insecticide, pesticides against others. Ah. Everything had a use. There was nothing, there was even lemongrass, which as you know, has citronella, which is yeah. a mosquito repellent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in areas where we have malaria, like where we come from, yeah. So everything had a function w- within itself, and that's that's why she was farming as a system and literally as a backup in case my grandfather's commercial venture, which is supposed to bring the money, failed. Because some seasons they would fail. Yeah. Wow, interesting. From this whole conversation, Kenya is still food insecure. People are still struggling to access food. What food system lesson can Kenya learn from, especially during this period, during the COVID period? I mean, we're a difficult time as a country. I mean, and you can't divorce it from our, from our colonial past, you know, the kind of systems we, we inherited, and then what happened to our own systems of knowledge, because our systems of knowledge were very systematically destroyed. I think the onus is on a lot of us, especially us as a generation. When I say us, I mean this generation. Yeah. People at least under 50 to at least take on some responsibility to sort of like interrogate their decisions, especially if you have if you have some sense of agency and there's a piece of land somewhere that you can actually decide what's going to happen to it, you know? It takes some agency because of the core of it, and this is the point I forgot to mention, is what my grandmother understood fundamentally, which is, is that you have to own your seed. Yeah. You can't call yourself a farmer if you don't own seed, 
right now our seed is completely commercialized mm -hmm. you know yeah. and and we have the kind of seed that can even survive without fertilizer and a whole range of other additives that have to go to make this plant to make this plant grow my grandmother kept all her seed you know so a lot of that seed disappeared. I mean, I was smart enough to at least keep with the lemongrass seed, the original lemongrass that she used to have. Mm -hmm. but, but by the time I was coming to that realization, most of the crops that she had there disappeared because nobody bothered to retain the seed. Yeah. So I think at the core of it is that if we retain the seed, because the seed comes from a generation of experience. There's a reason why something has survived that long. It has been passed on from generation to generation. And we're the first generation that turned the back on our seed. And what is happening is now is commercial big agricultural entities have basically colonized as yeah. colonized our seed. So they control everything to the point now in places like my village, you find that there are people now who can't grow. They have land, but they simply can't grow because they can't afford seed. Or if they afford seed, they can't afford fertilizer. Yeah. So, you know, it's a catch-22 situation. So there, there you have you have the resource, the land, but you can't afford to cultivate it because you have no seed. For true food sovereignty to happen, the first thing people have to do is that they have to take control back of their seed. Once they take control back of their seeds, mm -hmm. then we start to build back lost knowledge systems and basically innovate new ways based on our realities. This thing of trying to farm like Europeans, like the Dutch do, is not going to do us too good. Yeah, It works to a certain degree with certain large-scale operations, you know, that can yeah. work because it requires a lot of mechanization. But for small-scale indigenous farms, we have to think of alternative systems. Yeah. Because even soil gets exhausted. Yeah. If you abuse it, it will get exhausted. Wow. I also think the main problem here is that many people link food insecurity to a, a production problem. But but you see the, the thing is that it came out very well in this food series that you, that was curated that 25% of agricultural production in Kenya come from small-scale farmers. Yeah. Now, small-scale farmers are, are, are characters like me, dabbling around in some two, three-acre piece of land. Yeah. Right? Now, if we have some clarity about what our role is in terms of food securing a country, then we're able to make decisions that make our food systems more sustainable. Right now, I think we are very, very, very fragile. And COVID has tested us in real ways here. How do we even begin to bring back access and preservation of our seed culture? Is there hope? I, I think not necessarily from scratch. I, I like to say that our grandmothers are still alive. So let's go back to our real professors. You know, when talking about professors of agriculture, I mean, I'm talking to my grandmother who's been farming continuously for the last 70 years. And th this is one of my other grandmothers. My real maternal grandmother passed on a long time ago. But as you know, as Africans, we have grandmothers. Yeah. Many. We, don't, we don't love for grandmothers. And I, and I like to say grandmothers, not that grandfathers don't farm, but grandmothers are the keepers of the knowledge. Huh? Yeah. So we just need to go back to those people and observe them and ask them, you know, and, and sit at their feet. Because this generation is going to die out in the next 10 years. You know, the old, all this sort of uh, almost pre-colonial generation, the people who are alive when the white man was coming to this land. Yeah? Yeah. They're about to die. The last of them is about to die. And this knowledge is going to disappear. So what we need to do is, at least, especially those of us who are in positions of, 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 of agency, you know, is to write, write about it, you know, to tell the stories and, and to share this knowledge. But ultimately, we need to reconstruct new knowledge systems around agriculture to really interrogate. Kenya is a space that has a lot of expertise, you know, yeah. but we've got to challenge some of the systems that we've held as, as, as normal so that we actually then create alternative systems that work for us. Because right now we have an agricultural model that's completely aspirational. 
But this is why then you have greenhouses and all this agricultural scams coming up because everybody's looking at agriculture as a quick money fix. Yeah. You know, put up a greenhouse and become a millionaire in two years, you know, selling tomatoes and onions. We've got to change that attitude. Yeah. And the crazy thing is that our population grows by one million a year. So how do you anticipate that will look like in 30 years with when the population hits 100 million? Well, two things. It could be total anarchy or we could just be the generation that chooses the path of enlightenment, which is why then we go back. And when I say the generation, because there are individual choices. Yes, of course, there's the, there's the whole policy level, the stuff that only big government can do. But it's only an awake population that drives governments towards certain places, right? If you have a population that's asleep, nothing's going to happen at the top, right? So it starts with a whole basic bunch of cons- concerted conscious individuals making certain choices in their little small pocket. And they're the ones become now the spheres of influence that then affect communities. And these communities then put pressures on their leaders and their systems of governance to basically bring about fundamental change that basically benefits the people. So as opposed to looking at it as a crisis in the waiting, yeah. I look at it as an opportunity. Yeah. How do we organize ourselves in ways that basically we make ourselves food secure in the future? How do we organize ourselves that our knowledge systems are, are not only rediscovered, but retained so that can be passed on? And how do, we, how, how do we get back agency in terms of things that are most important, such as things like our seeds? Get back seed sovereignty, because seed sovereignty is the key to food sovereignty. Thank you so much. In closing, I have witnessed a lot of people talking about permaculture, kitchen gardening, do you think this is a path to self-sustenance? And what mm-hmm. advice do you have for anyone starting out in that direction? Well, I'll, I'll tell them, I mean, I, I guess sustenance is important. I think the whole principle of permaculture, which sometimes I laugh at because I'm saying, this, this is just, this is just Dana. You know, it's yeah. funny, you know, when it's packaged from the West, suddenly it becomes really beautiful. But yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's what, what we've always known. The idea about agriculture, agriculture was like a skill set that everybody had. Right? Mm-hmm. In the same way, I, I don't know, if, if you grew up in a pastoral community, nobody goes to a harding school. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, this is something you grow up knowing. You know, if, if you grow up in a farm in, in Europe, you'll always be able to drive a tractor. You don't have to go to a driving school for tractors. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got to sort of approach food as just a skill, the ability to produce food. So we should have like, basically as a skill set, like a, a profession. There's a whole bunch of people who know how to grow food. It should be something that's normalized. We should stop living it as something that's only to the specialists. We go back to how we always used to do it. Because my parents had professional jobs, but they were farmers. So we go back to the idea that everybody should understand the connection between them and the land and what they can do in terms of food production. Right? Yeah. Do people understand that? I know you're calling it kitchen gardening. Yeah. Um, uh, but gardening basically means potting around, you know, but, and, and it's a fancy time. But basically, I just call it farming. You know, as long as people can understand that it doesn't matter whether you're farming on, I don't know, 100 acres or Mm -hmm. a quarter acre or an eighth of an acre. Farming is farming, right? The same principles apply. So the ability to be able to continuously produce food on a single piece of of resource, of soil, of land, is is the skill that we have to develop deeply. And what's connected is is understanding the connection between the soil, Mm -hmm. uh, the the seed, Mm -hmm. and then the inputs and then the, the cycle. Because once we get that balance correct, and we know it at an individual level, then farming becomes sustainable. 
So, because that's at the core, because even the food production core, we're not producing food for ourselves. We're producing food for an almost an export market, an overseas market. So we have to go back in the sense of like, okay, as, as an individual, yeah. how, how do I learn? How do I farm correctly? Wow. We've talked about Chakula Magazine, about your grandma's farm, and the good pieces written in there. Which other spaces do you think Kenyans can talk about food? And how can they begin taking the power back? I think I think what you guys are doing becomes good is because first of all you just need to inform people because sometimes you sometimes we get hard on on ourselves but we just don't we just didn't have the information so I think the the important thing is that I think I think I mean, those of us who have opportunities to do this to continue to inform people to inform people all yeah. through and then to understand food and which I think this is something that Chakula has done really well to understand food as a system and you can be different sides of the system you know I mean yeah. even even as a consumer you have a lot of agency by deciding what you want to eat. Yeah. You know? If you're the kind of person who's going to insist on having eggs from Dubai, you only eat imported <laughs> food. And you're basically killing your own farmers. Yeah. You, know, you only eat, oh, I want the beef from, from New Zealand. You know, uh, yeah. this, this whole colonial mentality problem that we sometimes suffer as Africans. So if even at the consumer level, we have that level of awareness that said th- there's a direct there's a direct connection between what I buy and how yeah. it benefits an entire system of farmers at, at the bottom of the pyramid, that makes a big difference. So I think everybody has agency. They just have to realize that there's a connection. The reason why the West, for example, suffers mm-hmm. is because people have lost connection to their food, which is why somebody can be buying poison and they have no idea. Yeah. So we have to go back into understanding that what is the source of my food? The moment we understand the source of my food, then we understand that we are part of an integral system and each one of us has a play. Thank you so much, Oyunga. We've now come to an end of our conversation. But before we say bye to the people, a word from your grandma, Dana, to carry us throughout the week. That's the one I should have thought about. It's punchy and nice. Uh, but, um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I think I think it's just something my grandmother my my grandmother she didn't say but I think she would have said yeah is that you know you know I think the phrase I start with is um, they thought they buried us but they forgot that we were seeds right so the idea is that basically our grandmothers and and those who came before us have already implanted Uyunga, the seeds within us can yes? I take you back you said you, are, you they thought we had died or what did you say they thought we, they had buried us oh yeah yeah. Or rather, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. I mean, so it becomes. Um, and this was this is this this is a quote from from a Greek poet. So we might have lost our way a little bit, and we sort of forgot that we we have this knowledge. So I think we need to go back and realize that this knowledge is there. It's like a seed that's just waiting to be nurtured. You know, we just have to go back and gather it. We literally have to go back to where we left them behind, where we lost our way, and find ourselves afresh. You know, when you lose your way. On a journey, yeah. what do you do? You go back to the point where you lost your way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think the point where we lost our way is when we stop paying attention to what our grandmothers were doing. So if we go back there and start afresh, and then develop systems from what they were seeing, because we're talking about hundreds of years of yeah. observation yeah. that we just dismiss for another. So we need to go back and relearn again. You know, we just go back and learn afresh. You know, and, and so like like seeds, let's go back and gather the seeds that we, we we despise. Let's go back and pick them up and replant them afresh. Asante Oyunga for your insights and thank you, good people, for tuning in. 
will be coming to you every Friday. Please subscribe to our SoundCloud and iTunes account. Also on social media, at True to Food on Twitter, at True to Food on Facebook, at True to Food on Instagram, and at True to Food on YouTube. If you have any questions, views, opinions, or objections, please share them on info at truetofood.org. See you next week. Stay safe. Thank you.